morning, everyone, and welcome to the Mental Health and Addiction Podcast. Otherwise known as the NAP, where it's okay to ask for addictions. I'm your host, Kimberly Walsh, Executive Director of Brady's Landing, Sober Home for Women on the Cape. And uh, joining me are my friends, Andy Bernstein, Hello. who is our producer and co-host, and my good friend, Kristen Perry Long, who is our other co-host. Um, we've got Michael Weber at Foxboro Cable Access TV, who is streaming us live right now on the facttv.org website, as well as their Facebook page. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. As many of you know, we started this podcast to lend a voice to those who suffer from mental illness and addiction, those who have recovered, and for the people who love them. We provide information and resources that help reduce stigma while offering a platform for guests to share their stories of hope, healing, and inspiration. On Wednesday, we did a little case study of our own. We talked to Andy Bernstein, who had been uh, suffering a little bit with, uh, with some depression about this uh, situation the country's in right now. Um, so before he introduces our guest today, we wanted to check in with him. Andy, have you been handling the pandemic since we talked to you last? Well, two things. A, I started a band called The Pandemics. I'm just <laughs> Nice. <laughs> and I headed out to Los Angeles, and I'm now... Uh, did pull some strings, so I'm here at Dodger Stadium right now. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, I'm okay. I'm doing better. Uh, I uh, I went out for a walk. Just uh, one. Tried to reframe things for myself so that um, you know it's more acceptance. Trying to accept kind of where we are right now, and um, I find that that has uh, helped me. Um, kind of reaching out to other people, realizing, you know what, I'm not alone in this whole thing. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing better. Um, I'm trying to, you know, it's funny. I talked to one of my really good friends the other night and, uh, that always puts me in a good mood when I talk to one of my friends, it just always, always good. And, you know, just trying to be grateful. And, um, it was funny yesterday real quick. I went out with my wife. She had to go pick up something from work in Harvard Square. So we went up to Harvard Square. I brought my video camera, and I started taking video. And um, I started talking to some of the homeless people on the street. Um, And they were awesome. They were absolutely fantastic and kind of getting their take on stuff. And one of the things they said is contamination, uncontaminated is the new single and rich. Is what they said, you know, so it was kind of like, um, you know, life was life was good, um, you know, so for right now, I'm OK. It, it could change, but today I'm OK. Good, good. I wanted to talk about uh, about like this whole depression. So I've been talking to a lot of people that um, are depressed. I mean, I'm in and out of depression every day because if you really do start thinking about what's going on and how we have absolutely no control over it, um, you just sink. There's no swimming. You're just sinking. So what I thought about nine 11 came to mind. Um, and we had no, uh, we had no control. Like it just happened. Nine 11 just happened. And then we dealt with it. But now we're all sitting in our homes. We're forced to sit in our homes. We have no idea what is going to happen. And all we're doing is thinking about the worst because 
that's all we have. We, we don't know what to expect. Like 9-11, it just happened. And then we dealt with all the emotions and everything else. But now it's like, we're, we don't know what to expect. And I think it's, I don't know. I mean, I just been really thinking about it and I can't like quite put my finger on it, you know, but I posted on my Facebook page today, uh, a Ted talks of a, a neuro, I don't know what she is. She's a brain doctor, neuroscientist. And she talked about exercising the brain and how that helps uh, with depression. It's an immediate fix with depression Mm -hmm. and it makes all the sense in the world. So think about like, if you go for a walk on the beach, Kimberly, how good you feel after you get off the boardwalk and you get home. It's, it's a simple, simple thing that we can do from the confines in our home you know, they said, if you see stairs, take the stairs. Um, you know, she's like, you can, you can upload a, a low impact, uh, aerobic video, do it for 10 minutes. It gets the serotonin going in our brains again. So I just wanted to share that. It's true. And, um, I guess that, you know, talking about nine 11, I mean, that's really a great segue for our first guest, our only guest today. And, uh, I'll do the honors and introduce, our friend Polly V. So Polly uh, has been a, somebody I've interviewed a number of times uh, with our previous radio show, Crosscheck, and um, you know I've gotten to know over the past several years. And he is a wonderful human being with a really incredible story. Paul Polly used to be a flight attendant, and he uh, was impacted directly by nine eleven. He's battled with addiction and. Um, you know, and has been in recovery for a number of years and really can bring some interesting perspective on, on how, how this has impacted its life, 9-11 specifically. So I'm going to let Polly talk because his story is, uh, is one you got to hear. So, uh, let's welcome Polly. Let's welcome Polly. Hi, you guys. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, absolutely. Okay. It's nice to be here. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, everybody, for having me on the show. Uh, boy, what a way to start to hear that. Of course, I started getting tears in my eyes. Um, oof. Uh, first of all, let me tell you, it's a miracle that I'm able to be sitting here and to do this. Um, I'm very fortunate to have made it back to recovery. Um, I know my reasons now today is to carry the message of hope to people that have the same problem that I have. No question about it. It was a turning point and me returning to recovery. Um, I'm sitting in uh, my apartment right now and uh, I'm surrounded with a lot of 9-11 memorial. As you see behind me, the flag and uh, in front of me is uh, uh, a metal plate that United made for the uh, our crew members in Boston. And after a few years, they forgot two of the names when they made this plate. So it sat in my supervisor's office for I don't know how many years after 9-11. And uh, she ended up giving it to me. So I have it hanging on the wall. Uh, but I have a bunch of boxes sitting here right now. Uh, with uh, I'm in the process of somebody doing the story. And um, so I'm looking at all that stuff today. Um, I'll tell you just to get to my story of as quickly as, as trying to be as clear as possible. Um, 
being from a big family in nine, uh, both my parents grew up in Roxbury. Um, they brought up nine of us in Milton. And uh, they supported every one of us in whatever decision we wanted to go and whatever whatever interest either one of us. My family's a mixture of nurses, musicians, electrician. Um, but for me, it was always, there was something about travel. I don't know what it was. I just, I, I don't know. It was just instilled in me from as a little kid. But one thing I, I'm grateful for being brought up in a big family is that little did I realize what was being instilled in me from from what I can remember was my, I remember my mother always telling me, help your brother. Help. I didn't know what she was talking about. Help him. Let him borrow your shirt. Let him, and all this stuff she was always saying to me. And I, it just did, I, it just never registered. So as a, when I was real young, both my grandmothers were sick when they were dying in their deathbed. My mother's, my mother's mother and my father's mother, both of them, my parents, made the living room into a hospital room. They didn't want to put them in nursing homes. Now, my parents were both, my mother was from a family of 10. My father was from a family of 10. And here they had nine of their own. And they're the ones that didn't volunteer. They insisted. They're not going to a nursing home. We'll take them in this house. So I witnessed that as a young kid. But I remember having the fear, the fear of hearing my grandmothers in the, in the living room. And, uh, you know, they were yelling and, you know, they were, you know, at the, just, it was terrifying to me as a little kid. For some reason, it just, I don't know why. I never told anybody that for years, probably until I got sober. The reason I'm telling that story, because I know as my life has gone on and I've gotten sober again, I look back at a lot of this stuff and realize the fear I had of death from early, early on. So, what transpired, transpired in my life, my older brother, who was a rock drummer, there were bands playing in my house all the time as a kid. And back in the 60s, 70s, you know, it was, it was uh, hardcore rock and roll, drugs, and, you know, and I saw that as an elementary school. And uh, so I, I was introduced to that stuff as a young age. And, uh, and when I drank alcohol as a young kid, really young, 9, 10, 11, whatever it was, I, Right off the bat, I, I drank to oblivion. I, I can't tell you how many times I remember waking up in the laundry room the next day. And, uh, and then everybody telling me what I missed the night before. And it used to drive me crazy. Why do I always miss everything? Why? I, I didn't understand it, that I was drinking to oblivion. So, um, I, um, you know, back then, then there was a lot of speed being passed around and, uh, you know, Black Beauties and Crossroads. And uh, and when I took that stuff, I didn't pass out. And I was, you know, right away, I was said, this stuff is perfect. I love this stuff. And the reason why is because I could keep drinking. I know that today. So, you know, I went through school playing sports. I was really good in sports as a young kid. Into high school. And then it dissipated. You know, uh, senior year in high school. Because I consider myself a product of the cocaine 80s. And that's when cocaine was rampant. And the nightclubs and the discos and every and the strip clubs and all that stuff. It was just a fascinating back then. So I was driving. Well, first of all, I'll tell you, I got hired a year out of high school as a flight attendant. And I got based in New Jersey. 
for World Airways, a charter airline that went scheduled service. And a lot of people in Boston remember they went off the runway at Logan. Um, so I flew for them for like a year and a half. And I got laid off. And when I came back home to Boston, I ended up in the construction business and was driving 10-wheel dump trucks. This is around 82, 1982, I started driving trucks. And uh, and cocaine was rampant. Everybody was doing it. I was doing it. It was just, you know, I was making a lot of money driving these dump trucks. And uh, progression, progression, progression. Then I realized, you know, there's a lot of funny stories that I can tell in the, when I'm around people in the program that it's, you know, it's hard to tell these stories to people that don't understand as we, people in recovery know. But for me, what happened was, you know, it was a fast lane. It was just a fast lane. And, uh, I didn't realize time was going by. And then all of a sudden they started cooking the cocaine and, um, and life changed at that point. There was no more nightclubs. There was no more discos. There was no more strip clubs. There was none of that when we started smoking the stuff. And things started to deteriorate my life. You know, I couldn't keep a girlfriend. I always joke about it for longer than a half hour back in those days. You know, the disco, the fast lane, it was just the way it was. And what it was is I was a full-blown addict and alcoholic. And Did you get 54? You know, just it was insanity. <laughs> so... What transpired eventually, um, to, um, was all of a sudden my father was in his a family construction company. There were six brothers, and they were starting to be diagnosed with cancer one at a time, and they started dying off. And uh, my father was the youngest of all his brothers. And next thing, um, my mother got sick with cancer. Now, at this, before this happened, I've already, you know, I was in my 28, I think probably 27, 28 when I hit my first detox. I didn't, you know, it was just, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I ran out of money or whatever. That's, that was the end thing back then in the late 80s. And uh, everyone was going to treatments or whatever. It was 30 days here. And, you know, and like they tell everyone that goes into treatment, you know, you know, if you don't go further treatment from here, you know, you when you get out, get to a meeting, join a group, get active, get a sponsor. They told me that every time I was in treatment. I'd leave treatment and uh, you know, I'd show up at a meeting, but I'd never get involved in the thing. I'd never get in the middle of it. I didn't realize how powerful the disease of addiction was. I just, you know, I was single. I was never married. You know, I didn't have any kids. And people would come into these treatment facilities and talk about, be, you know, losing their families and not being there for their husbands, their wives, their kids. And it was going right over my head. I, I, you know, I didn't understand what they were talking about, that gut-wrenching feeling. That all, see, see, when I tell my story a lot, and de- I love doing detox commitments, but I get emotional because well, I know what I'm getting to. I know what's coming up. And what's coming up of my story is the painfulest part of my story. That's what the, the disease of addiction did to me. And I don't like what it did to me. Uh, but it's a fact, and it's important for me to... To, um, to tell a story because anybody that's been down the road of addiction, the story might be different, but I believe the pain's the same. And um, so what happened was, uh, you know, after detoxes, treatments, and I'm 31 years old at the time, and, uh, and my mother got sick with cancer. 
and she had her voice box taken out. And then here's my father trying to run this business and his brothers all you know, just all died. He's all alone down there at the, at the business. And uh, his, now my mother's sick and I could see the stress of my father. And all of a sudden my father got cancer. And, um, and here's my eight brothers and sisters in the house. And they're all doing what you're supposed to do. You know what? Under those conditions, two of my sisters who were nurses, they had a list, they had a board in the kitchen, and they would put which brother or sister would be there when the nurse or doctor showed up at the house. Now, here are my parents now in the living room. And, uh, and I could not walk through that kitchen because I knew why they, I, I couldn't look at that board and I, because I knew they couldn't put my name on that board because I couldn't be there. They couldn't count. <laughs> so May 15, 1992, my mother died at nine o'clock and 12 hours later, my father died. <sighs> and I knew. I knew right then what these people were trying to tell me, how powerful the disease of addiction was. I couldn't deny it. When I opened the door of my parents' house to let the undertaker in, I looked outside and there were three guys from an AA meeting leaning on a car in front of my parents' house that morning. I'll never forget it to the day I died. It was a Friday morning and this is a group I never joined, but I, I go in there, Fort Square in Quincy, seven o'clock meeting in the morning when I come out of the old Quincy detox. The old faction Detroit and Quincy, I got out of that meeting. I never joined it, never got a sponsor, and I never stayed sober. But those three guys were standing up in front of that house that morning. And they, they took me to the meeting that night. And, uh, and that's when I knew what I was up against, that I better listen to these people. And guess what happened? I joined the group, I got a sponsor, and guess what? My life changed. Just like anybody in recovery that stays sober long enough witnesses it with other people, which I'm fortunate enough to witness again. You know, and little I realize it's happened in my life today. So my life changed. It opened up just like my sponsor told me what I never thought it would. I was devastated. Two years sober at that point, and I got rehired with the airline industry, my dream job again. I started traveling around the world. I mean, I remember my sponsor telling me, Paul, you can't even imagine where your life is going to end up. You just can't comprehend it in this early stage of recovery. But trust me, you'll be floored. And I'll tell you, I'll never forget when I was sitting on a camel riding around the pyramids in Egypt. That's the first thing I thought about was what he said. Because it was true. He said, just focus on staying sober a day at a time and your life is going to open up. And sure enough, he was right. My life opened up again. And my brothers, two younger brothers who became addicts, Follow me into AA. They're both sober over 20 years today. And um, so I had the fortunate experience of coming out of where I was and to turn it around with the help of people that were just like me. Thank you, God. But there, as people in recovery know, there will come a day for some of us, not all of us, but I'm one that could say it came for me, that that day will come. With no power on this earth, will keep you ready for drink or drug. Now, I was sober for 10 years. And believe me, all the meetings in AA, for 10 years, all the friends in AA, and I heard that over and over and over again. 
And uh, I don't want to say it went over my head, but I didn't realize that that day could come for me. What could be worse in my life at this point? I'm still single, never been married, don't have kids. I'm keeping a girlfriend at this point longer than a half hour. My life has changed, but I just never thought that anything could rock me like my parents dying 12 hours apart. I don't think it could happen. And uh, that day came for me. I was working for United Airlines and uh, based in Boston. And uh, my route was Boston to LA. I used to lay over in LA and then work the all night at home. And, uh, and that's what happened. I come into Boston, get off the plane, five of my friends get on it, and they hit the second tower, flight 175 on 9-11. I was 10 years sober. I never did an opiate in my life. And eight days later, I was on City Hall Plaza setting up the crew members' jackets for Memorial Concert with a pocket full of Oxycontin. I proceeded on a 15-year heroin run. It's a miracle that I'm sitting here talking to you right now. A miracle to me. I flew for 10 more years, strung out on opiates, and uh, the stories are horrific. But at the end, I was all of a sudden, I was in the middle of death all the time. People overdosing around me, half my age. It was mind-boggling to me. Some people out there that have had some recovery and know what I'm talking about. Like when you, all of a sudden, you know, nothing could pull me out of this thing. It was absolute insanity. From, you know, I knew nothing about opiates. I wasn't an opiate addict. You know, I knew nothing about that stuff. But it worked. It numbed me out. After 9-11, I was able to get on that plane. And, and, and you know, I, I had my guard up, but I, the public didn't know because it numbed me out. And I was able to function. I had a good reputation in the airline industry. Not a mark against me. Uh, I love my job, uh, but I was in shock after 9-11. I, don't, I know that today. I was in shock, and I never dealt with it because I was numbed out. And what, what finally brought it to a head, really, was uh, two weeks before the 10-year anniversary of 9-11, I was in the process of trying to set up a memorial concert. And every year the anniversary would come up, it would tear me apart because I'd hear about the firemen, the policemen. I'd hear about everybody, but I never heard about the crew members. You know, they were fighting hand-to-hand combat that morning. And, you know, I just never heard that. And I said, at the 10-year anniversary, I'm going to do something that the whole nation's going to hear about and recognize these crew members. And maybe that will get the monkey off my back. Maybe that will help me get clean because I felt like I was carrying it for so long. So I was in a training class in, in Chicago. R.E.T., they call it. Every year we go through recovery training. And... Um, I um I uh you know I was in this training class and um I ended up uh well they put a videotape up how to protect yourself if you're attacked on an airplane and I'm sitting in this room, I've been up for three days on cocaine and heroin and sitting there with twenty other flight attendants in the classroom. And I was shaking my head, and I couldn't believe it. And I said, it's been 10 years, and that's all you're going to do for me is put a videotape up on how to protect myself? I said, you've given the pilots guns and barricaded the cockpit door. And I reached in my bag, and I pulled the box cutter out, and I held it up. I said, I've been carrying this for 10 years. And that's when uh, everything came crashing down. I um, 
they ended up sending me to treatment out in California for, uh, I ended up out there for seven months in treatment for post-traumatic stress. Little did they realize they never drug tested me or anything. But I was really out there, you know, it was for everything. I mean, they had therapists trying to help me. They had everybody trying to help me. And, uh, and I was, you know, I was in the program out there in this treatment facility, but I knew there was something missing. I knew there was something missing. And uh, I didn't know what it was. And uh, I came back here and uh, relapsed. And uh, my brother found me and uh, I, was, I was in tough shape. I was doing a lot, a lot of cocaine, trying to get myself off the opiates. And he sent me out to Florida for another treatment facility. I was out there for eight months. And uh, then I had to come home for neck surgery. And um, I came to Boston for neck surgery and they put me on pain medication and I, I was off and running again. At the end of my using, there were people dying around me. Literally, there were, you know, girls I knew that overdosed. I, you know, I, um, I, uh, I, I know specifically this one instance where I was doing CPR on a girl at seven o'clock in the morning in a gas station parking lot in Dorchester uh, for 17 minutes trying to revive this girl. And it was the first time I thought about killing myself because I, she was 35 years old. And I'm thinking, if I don't revive this girl, I'm going to have to uh, go in and tell her two daughters. And the thought of that terrorized me. And then the thought came into my head, how am I going to take myself out? And that terrorized me. Thank you, God, I revived that girl. And I wish I wish that was it. I could finish. By, but I'll just tell you what happened. After being back a year sober, I saw her at an AA meeting. And uh, I couldn't believe it. She got a 30-day chip. And then she stood up and uh, got the chip. And I talked to her. And it was great seeing her. And, um, she, um, I got a phone call four days later that, um, they found one of the daughters found her dead and death. And, uh, so why don't I just try to get to my recovery now, um, and a little bit about what's going on today and how it's affected me. The turning point in my recovery was I was at a meeting, my group meeting. And uh, I was a couple of months sober, and I uh, I didn't realize how I could help someone. I, are you guys still? I got, We're here. You, can you still got me? Yep. All right, I got Texas coming in. That's why. Um, what happened was I, uh, you know, early recovery for me, the way I explain it is it was like a ping pong ball in my head. I couldn't shut my head up. That's exactly how I, it was. And so I, I go to three meetings a day. It was the only time I got some comfort in my mind. It was when I heard someone else speak, I focused on the speaker. And I get a little peace of mind. And uh, so it was about two months sober. It was right before Christmas. And uh, and all I'm thinking about is me, 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 me. I couldn't shut it off. Me, 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 me. Early recovery, just insanity going on in my head. But I knew if I used, I was going to die. I knew it deep down in my soul. I didn't want to use, but I didn't realize my body still did. At the break of this, a guy in our group gets up and dresses as Santa Claus, and he and he, what he does, he calls up group members and asks them what they're grateful for. And at the break, um, I walked outside, and this guy came walking up to me. I'd never seen him before in my life. He came walking up the sidewalk, and he starts talking to me. He's shaking. And this guy was really in tough shape. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know word for word what I said to this guy. 
But uh, he told me he was a heroin addict for 30 years. He lived up the street in a rooming house. And that he's, he's taken soul. He's been tried for years. It just doesn't. And he couldn't draw the heroin into the syringe that morning. So he went for a walk to calm down. And he ends up in front of an AAV. See, I'm going to get emotional thinking about it. Hey, so, Paul. Paul, your video is stuck. Okay, hold on one second. Let me see if I can. Uh, Modern technology right now, right? Uh, okay, here we go. Let me see. There's that pretty face. Is that there? Is that better? Yep. Yes, and you're doing great. Okay, so um, what happened was I came outside the meeting and I started talking to this guy. And uh, I told him what I, a little bit about myself. I know that I said I go to a morning meeting at, at 7 o'clock every morning. And that was, I walked back into the meeting and, the, the, you know, the next morning I go to this 7 o'clock morning meeting and this guy's sitting in the circle. And uh, the next morning he's sitting in the circle. And the next morning he's sitting in the circle. And the next morning he's sitting in the circle. And I'm, I'm witnessing this, you know, in this, this 11 step meeting. And, uh, and it goes around and people speak. And uh, 72 days, I believe it was, this guy's still going every morning. And he, at the, near the end of the meeting, he goes, um, it comes to him and he's there. I've been carrying this letter for five days and I feel like I should read this today. And nobody says a word. Nobody knows what he's talking about in the meeting. And uh, so he pulls these three pieces of paper out. I'm looking at them right now as I tell you this. And, uh, and he starts to read. And it says to Paul V. And he says, explains that morning when I walked out of that meeting and what he's going through now today, he says that he's never met anybody that had such conviction about recovery in his whole life, trying to get sober for 30 years. So he went home to the rumor house that day, flushed the heroin he had, and showed up the next morning at the meeting. And showed up every day since then. It's been 72 days. He detoxed right in front of my eyes and everybody else's eyes. And uh, he had a, in the room that I was he had a noose. He was going to hang himself that day. So afterwards, he finishes telling the story, reading the letter, and he comes over to me and he hands it to me. I had tears running down my face. And he says to me, I want you to have this. Now, nobody in that room knew. But he said, before he read it, he goes, I've been carrying it for five days. And I feel like today I should read it. Nobody in that room knew. But that day was my birthday. Why he picked that day, who knows? But I'm telling you, my whole life, all the drugs and alcohol I put my system, my whole life, you could have given it to me at once and wouldn't have got me as high as I was at me. It proved to me it proved to me that all I had to do was show up there in the transmission line from one person to the next. What happened? And I witnessed it. I saw this guy get sober, and he's sober today. And uh, so it was a turning point in realizing I got to keep doing what I'm doing. So I don't know exactly when the miracle happened to me. But to, to me, I, the miracle is the obsession was lifted.
just stopped. All that stopped in my head. One day, all of a sudden, it just stopped. I was in a meeting, and I just, I knew I was going to be okay. But that's a miracle. The obsession was lifted out of my body and in my mind. I mean, you know, for the longest time, I, I had mental I didn't want to use, but my body did. And I didn't know that at the time until it was gone. When it was gone, then I realized that's a miracle. I know that I know from my experience being sober before and my experience today that none of us in the program know when the miracle is going to happen to anybody else. We can't pinpoint that you're going to get sober or the miracle will happen in two months, six months, a year, whatever. But we all know that it does happen to us. You never quit five minutes before the miracle. When that happens to you, we don't know. But if you just keep coming and you keep coming, it's guaranteed. We witness it. We witness it. We all do. That have turned it around. So it's important for me to tell you know what my older brother works in South Bay Jail, and uh, and uh, as Andy knows, I've told this story before. I've always my whole life was petrified of go doing time, going to jail, whatever, and uh, because of the tattoos I have, and I joke about it. I have Charlie Brown on my leg. I yeah, you do, do you? I'm, I have a matching dolphin on my ankle. And the thought of me going to jail, being a flight attendant, shuffling into jail, I figured that murdered me when I got there. So since I've been sober, now my brother who works at South Bay contacted me. He said, there's a guy there that wants to know if you'll come in here and speak. And at first I was nervous about it. And then I thought about it. And, and a guy calls me and he says, you know, Peter told me a little bit about your story. And he says, it's important. For someone like you, especially at your age, to come, because a lot of these guys in this jail are relapsed people. They're, they're sitting in jail because of a relapse, a high majority of them. And they don't think that they can come out of it. He's saying, you're living proof that you can come out of it. So I did. I went in there and I did speak. And uh, I was supposed to speak last week and I had to cancel it again because of what's going on today. So I know that what, what I found out truly is what was being instilled to me as a little kid. The answer to this whole thing is help somebody else out. That's the answer to me. That it's, it gets me out of me. When I, can, when I can reach out to somebody and help them, then I'm not thinking about me. That's the answer. My parents tried to tell me that when I was three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever. And, and that, that's the answer to this whole thing. And all of a sudden, we, come, we know that because we know how better we feel when we're able to help someone. So... There's a lot of my story that when I speak at detoxes, I tell some funny stories about what went on with me on the airplane. <laughs> but, you know, nobody, nobody knows. I mean, believe me, there's some, Andy knows a few other stories. But wow. a lot of some crazy, crazy stuff happened when I was flying. And I tell them funny, like it's, it's not funny, it's insanity. But I, when I'm speaking in a detox, I try to get some of these people to laugh a little bit because they're not in a state of mind to have, Know what it's like to laugh and to give them a little hope. So um, I just know that today, I mean, what's going on today, I got to be honest and talk about it a little bit because I really have been thinking about it. And, and, and uh, when you opened the show up today and talked about 9 11 and how 9, when 9 11 did happen, it was a shock. We were playing sort of prepared for what's going on today. It's a little bit different, but I do have some fear. But it's, um, you know, I've learned that I got, you know, something, no matter what I got to do to stay sober, I'm going to do it. Because I'm one of the fortunate ones 
that have experienced 9-11 firsthand right up front and pulled me out 10 years sobriety, took it away from me. So no matter what's going on, I don't care what it is, this is, this is pretty bad if you ask me what's happening today. But it's still, I, I'm fortunate enough to have the experience to know that a drinker of drugs is not going to answer no matter what. So, so, so Polly, let me ask you, what are you doing to stay sober in well, this isolate, with all this isolation? Um, well, I've been doing a lot of the, um, uh, these type of meetings on Zoom. My group, I did a commitment the other night. Uh, so I've been staying in contact with people. I have to be honest with you, I've been doing a lot of sheet therapy, which isn't good. It's not. Um, you know, Netflix or whatever, um, it's not really good. I mean, thank God for this stuff. I, I The first one I did, I was uncomfortable with it at first, but then as my group got involved more, it's helped me a lot. It has helped me a lot. Um, I mean, I, you know something? You know what I do? I do this thing a day at a time. I cannot go any farther than that. I know better that I'm grateful for what I have right now. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I'm going to do the best I can today to try to do the, you know, you, you, thank you for talking about the depression part. Yeah, of course I have depression. It's easy to stay under the blankets. And I joke about that on Facebook. Everyone knows me and saying I love the blankets. I love sleeping. And, and, and you know something, that's not going to help me. I understand that. I need people like you. I need people that understand it to bring up a suggestion because I have five sisters that are addicts and they suggest stuff to me that I know they care about me. And they say, well, go for a walk or whatever. And for some reason, that doesn't penetrate, even though I know they care and love me. But for some strange person that's in recovery, when they say something, it penetrates. I don't know. That's just the answer to this thing. The transmission line. I don't know. It's, that's how it works. So I, but the hardest thing I got to do is show up. And by being here today, that's the hardest thing. Because the miracle happens when I show up. And so exactly. today, by being here and doing this, I'm motivated. Why you said that about walking and raining outside, I can't wait for this to end because you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go for a walk in the rain. <laughs> now, my sister's been telling me to do that because she, they're worried about me. they're worried about me. My, my sobriety date's September 11th. Out of five years, is September 11th. Is it really? Wow. That's awesome. Five years in, in September. That's nuts. That's crazy to me. So, you know, if, if I could t- say anything to anybody that's out there that's struggling or have relapsed or new to this thing, I don't suggest anything to anybody because I'm, all I know is the best thing I can just suggest to you is just show, show up and uh, let the miracle happen. Just show up and believe what we're trying to tell you, that this thing works. And it absolutely works. Now, another thing is when you don't want to show up, that's when you show up. That's a big part of my first sponsor told me years ago. When you're laying in bed or you're watching something and you don't feel like going, for train yourself to that's the most important time to go is when you don't want to go. And it's been proven to me again, once again, because it probably happened to me since I've been sober again, maybe about five or six times. And when I felt that way and I didn't want to go to a meeting because of whatever was going on, and that thought came in my head, ah, maybe I won't go. I get up and I went, and it, all of those five times, something happened. That transmission line, something happened that night at that meeting. Someone came into my life, it's happened. It just does. And I might not have realized it until the next day, but it, does, it just does. 
So anybody that's struggling, I know it's easier said that. I mean, I know for me, I'm, I'm a people person. I like being around people. I like that interaction. I just do what helps me. I when I hear people, I move and lose me. So this has been tough. It's been tough. Yeah, I'm struggling with it, but I'm going to get through it today. I'll get through it today. So um, I don't know. I'm just I'm grateful to thank you really for inviting me on this. Um, I know that the most important thing I can do is reach out to somebody because literally I realize it helps me. And I don't want to go back to where I came from, and I don't have to today with the help of you, Andy. And thank you. Also recovery. So, hey, Paul, Paul, will you tell the story? I don't know if you feel like telling the story. It's some of my one of my all-time favorites about being in L.A. with the shopping cart. Okay, I will. All right. Since you want to hear it, I'll tell it. Um, okay. I don't know how many years into this relapse. Um, I uh, see. I, 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 um, I didn't know anybody in... Boston, because I wasn't an opiate addict. And, and so I was buying all my opiates on the West Coast, Vegas, LA, San Francisco. And uh, so I'm trying to juggle my life, my schedule on the airplane, you know, what I'm laying over in what city and have the dealer wait and all that was going on. I don't know how I ever lasted doing it. Um, but I was in LA and, uh, and I was dope sick, as they call it, uh, deathly ill sick and I had to work a flight out of LA back to Boston an all-nighter and I didn't have any drugs and I needed to get drugs because I couldn't get on the plane in the condition I was and uh, I was down to South Central LA and my flight attendant uniform um, probably you know hanging off me because I lost so much weight and um, oh what's this coming on my foot and um I'm looking for drugs in my uniform, and uh, and I find this homeless couple. Uh, this woman, she's in a, she, her feet are so swelled that we had to sit her in a shopping cart, and a Mexican boyfriend had a, a big jug of booze, and I'm pushing the shopping cart up and down the streets of South Central LA for four hours in my flight attendant uniform, sweat pouring off me. And I don't know if people thought it was I had a Halloween costume on or what, but uh, I, was, <laughs> I was trying to find drugs because I had to work a flight out of there. Now that's that's a vivid memory because I, I couldn't, you know, I just it was in total insanity. There was a lot of stuff that different th- situations that I was that's very unusual because I was a flight attendant. Uh, you know, you had a whole bunch of stories. I mean the. You know, the uh, the doctor you were telling me about? or Yeah, the doctor wrote me a script on the plane. The FBI grabbed me. Uh, it was just, I don't know how I survived. And, and the story of, that I'm, when, I, when I'm reminded of it is when I, when I bought a lot of Archie Cotton out in San Francisco and, and I was getting paranoid that they were going to, uh, you know, bust me when I got back to Boston. I got 2,000 pills in San Francisco, and and before I get on the plane, I thought, oh, they're going to get me when I land the Boston. This is what my mind was telling me. So I took all the 10 of them and taped them underneath a computer desk in a flight attendant office in San Francisco. So, you know, and then I get on the plane with 10 pills. I fly back to Boston, and I get off the plane, and nobody's there to arrest me. And I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? So I get back on another plane and flew back to San Francisco 
to take, pull them out from underneath all in one day. I flew to San Francisco twice and back. Just, just that was normal. Just so I had something that I wasn't sick because I was working a flight to San Francisco the next day. So I mean, it was just constantly back and forth across the country. You know, if we got a mechanical in some city and I had a drug dealer waiting in another city, I would have to come up with some excuse. You know, call the crew desk. I can't work this flight. Something happened, and I jump on another airline and fly. Out. It was just, you know, for ten years I, I put up. You know, it was just unbelievable. It was unbelievable. It was makes you crazy, doesn't it? I, I I can relate to a lot of that stuff. I'm long term recovery myself, Paul. That's your story is incredible. It's incredible. I hope you do write a book or get to speak to. They're doing a movie on him, huh? They're doing a movie on him. Tell us about the movie. Well, my friend uh, Eric Carlos, he was um, he was one of the the, the, the big influence and uh, a big factor in the movie Eight Days a Week, The Beatles. He um, he's one of the He's well-known all over the world. Beatles uh, archives. He's got footage of the Beatles that nobody has. He's tracked this stuff down for years. So it was him that, uh, I believe, Apple, who the Beatles runs, yeah, whatever. They brought him out to you know, London or whatever. And he was a deciding factor in that movie. Um, but I went to school with him from second grade on. I hadn't seen him in 30, over 30 years. And he started to hear bits of my story on Facebook, and we contacted each other. And uh, right now, we're in the process, of the early stages of, uh, you know, he's been, um, he wants to do the story. He, he really believes there's a movie. Uh, um, so it's, a, you know, it's something I never thought about. Um, but, you know, um, He's, you know, when I sit down with this guy, he, we go four hours at a time and he records, digitally records my story. I just ask me stuff. He's trained in like hypnotism, but you're not hypnotized. He knows how to pull stuff out of you, memories or whatever. And uh, uh, so he's he's putting it together slowly. This has put a halt to it because of what's going on today. I, uh, that's what I was saying. I'm looking at all of these big uh, boxes of all the stuff that I have, memories and pictures and you know, when I first started flying, it was all Instamatic Kim, and so I get tons of pictures. But um, a lot of it's, uh, uh, you know, he's amazed that he really wasn't, didn't understand the recovery part. And uh, um, now he's, he's just, he's, he's, he, you know, he's amazed at what went on on that airplane. That A lot of people are, too. I mean, uh, I'm still having a hard time um, talking about it, but not that I in contact with many flight attendants, but that Andy, that thing that I sent you, that's what he sent out to flight attendants that I knew. Right. He's trying to get insight of what I was like before 9-11, what type of flight attendant I was, and if they, you know, what they, you know, he's a, you know, he, and he warned me, he said, you might not like what you hear, whatever, and I, I said, Eric, you know, I believe the story should be told, it should be told, and uh, so I'm willing to put myself out there, I think, um, it's really about bringing the message of recovery to. Uh, see, I'm, I'm I don't I don't know how good I am at speaking about this stuff in front of people that don't understand recovery, and I, that's a, that's something I need to work on. I believe if I have to tell people, parents or whatever, but I can talk to a detox or treatment facility, and, and and I know from the reactions I've gotten in the last four years, four and a half years, of what how important the story is. The, the despair that I was in, 
when I get into a lot of the details, while well, I'm in the talks, and uh, I can see the reaction from these people and the phone calls and the people that reach out to me afterwards and the people that I see that were in detoxes that come up to me. I can't tell you everywhere I go. You know, I'll be driving on the street. I hear a miracle man. It's just, I hear it all over the place around the recovery circuit. And, 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 and I'm not looking for a praise about it. It's just the truth. So I know that I can have an impact. Uh, and, I, and I'll use that whatever way I can if I can help somebody. Because, because uh, only I know and people in recovery know what the spirit is from the disease of addiction. And uh, if I can help, that's what, you know, that, I'll, you know, that's what it's about, period, for me. Tell us about, I'm sorry. Tell us about the T-shirt, the, the miracle T-shirts. Um, what do you want to know about them? <laughs> You're making them, right? You make them. Like, why, 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 why do you wear the miracle T-shirt? Well, I, um, what happened? How the miracle thing came up was in that morning meeting when the obsession was lifted for me. Like the word just would not come out. It was constantly coming out of my mouth. I, I was, it was, I was, I was, I was in such shock that that. The miracle happened to me again. I was in Anytime I spoke, I, 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 it was a miracle. The total thing was a total miracle to me. So all of a sudden, people would just stop and call me miracle. Hey, miracle. Hey, miracle. Hey, miracle. And it was just like every day, no matter where I went, and I hear it, hear it, hear it. And something told me, you know something? They're going to call you it. Accept it. So I went and I had some T-shirts made. And ever since then, People everywhere I go, where's my miracle shirt? Where's my miracle shirt? And uh, so, to be honest with you, I'm trying to find someone, someone that would, because you know, I, I wish I could, you know, I'd make 25 at a time, whatever, but it's, it's costing me money, you know what I mean? And, and you know, in the program, I'd love to hear about everybody, but I just, you know, I can't afford to keep making it. So, uh, well, let's work on, let's work on that. Let's get those shirts out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So. Uh, but so I mean, it's you know, how can I not be grateful? How can I not be grateful? Well, I, because I, you know, there's a lot to a lot of our stories. Mine's a little weird because I, I joke about it when I'm at a meeting. There's nobody in this meeting that got as high as I did. You know what I mean? I was at thirty thousand feet for ten years, going six hundred miles an hour. So believe me, you can't get me higher than me. But I, I say that as a joke. But the fact, I know it's an unusual story because in the airline industry, it's taboo, you know? It's just, it just is. So um, I'll use whatever opportunity I have to bring some hope to somebody because I know that it can be turned around. I'm living proof it can be turned around. A lot of us know that. So it's important for me to show that if you fell, if you relapsed or whatever, you can turn it around. I don't care how old you are. It's possible. So that's the main goal of me even sitting here. Many goals to stay sober today. But in the meantime, I know that by doing stuff like this, that maybe I can reach somebody that will give it a shot, uh, give it a little spark of hope that I can do this thing. I can do this thing. So, oh, Paul, you've been, um, that is an amazing story. I have to tell you, I was, I was sitting here absolutely riveted. Um, and I, like I said, I can relate to a lot of the things you said. And I just, I think your story is amazing. And I'm so, I'm so grateful. We're so grateful that you came on today to, to talk to us. 
So great. I think we're running out of time. We, we get an hour on our live feed. But um, guys, did you guys have any questions for, for Paul? Well, he's going to come back on again. Will you come back on again? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Because you have more stories. Oh, yeah. I know you wanted me to talk a little bit about Cynthia. I didn't want to get into that on my first thing, but that's, you know, that was a big factor in my recovery, too, you know? Yeah, that's a great story, too. It's a love story. It is a love story. Well, that's a big thing. And Eric has really intrigued him that he was, that, that really, when he, when he saw that and, and he saw when I was on Kevin's show with her, um, he was he was baffled over the whole thing. He's you know someone half your age and how like you know you know what happened with that when I met her and how you know ten years using it and it was the first time I got I felt some peace in my head when I was with her and then didn't see her for eight years and she comes back and gives me my four year medallion. What a crazy crazy. It's a for that. Yep. Yeah, well, we're gonna we're gonna keep you. You're gonna you're gonna come back on. We want we want to definitely have you back on. You know, Absolutely. you're one of my the people's champion, Paulie V. Anytime, Andy. Uh, all right, stay safe out there, my friend. You too. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate Thank, it. Thanks. Thanks so much, Paul. Okay. Thank you so much. I loved your story. All right. So that's our show for the week. That's our show for us. Yeah. Um, okay. So everybody. Remember, if you or a loved one needs help, needs help with treatment, wants groups, meetings, anything, if you have any questions about the topics we discuss, you can call us anytime. You can call me at 774-338-4060 or Christian at 508-212-7206. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you to our amazing guest again, Paul Mito, and we will see you next Wednesday at 11 a.m. on The The Map. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye, stay safe.